Folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 77 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually not jam bands. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. But the problem with fish fans is sometimes they get a bit myopic, able to recall dates, set lists, times, exactly what they ingested at a certain show and how it affected them looking at the lights at that show. But when it comes to other bands, they just stare at you blankly. And that's that's problematic. It's very problematic. And there's just there's got to be someone who can do something about this. Right, Dave? Yeah, us. I think that. Yeah, I think that we're we're gonna do the best we can to be those people that can do something about it. And we are here in episode seventy-seven to do something about it. We are revisiting the mother of all fish festivals. Curveball. One of the best. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> and perhaps. One of the 10 best music festivals that has ever happened. In its 20th anniversary here, we are talking about Big Cypress once again. If you listen to our episode in early June on the split open and melt from Big Cypress, this is our second of third uh, of three episodes that are coming out in 2019 covering the festival. We are going to talk tonight about the Cross-Eyed and Painless from deep into the all-night set at Big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation on December 31st, 1999. Some of the themes we're going to discuss in this episode include late-night intensity and speed. You could say that the band was living after midnight. Tonight we're going to party like it's 1999. Still waiting. And on that note... Let's get to some fish.
All right, folks. So, question is, why this gym? Why are we um, why are we devoting an evening to talking about the cross-eyed and painless from Big Cypress? Well, this jam was incredibly fast. It's locked in and it's driving. Like this is like being really, really focused on the autobahn at two o'clock in the morning. You're being chased. And all of this really kind of kicks in around the 14-minute mark of the jam. This is the kind of jam that, due to the ravages of age, certainly through no fault of their own, Fish isn't really capable of playing anymore. And that's fine. I mean, I'm turning 40 in a week, and I can barely bend my lower back without moaning about it. And uh, <laughs> what's kind of a little crazy is knowing that, I mean, at this point, there's another, you know, what, like six hours of music after this jam? Like, they cool themselves yeah. off by playing the in-law Josie Wales right afterwards, but I just can't even begin to imagine where the endurance came from. It almost makes you wonder how they were ever to do a normal quote tour ever again, but they did. Yeah. And then you follow this up after in-law Josie Wales with 40 mind bending minutes of sand in a quadraphonic top lane. Uh, still the only quadraphonic top lane that has ever been played. It's just blows me away that they were ever able to not only tour, but play like just a simple standard show ever again after big Cypress because the jamming. Yeah. It's like once you reach the apex of the mountain, where do you go? Right. Right. I mean, it it's, you listen to a jam like this, knowing that this came in a set after the down with disease, after the bathtub gin, after the twist. And now you get this 20 minute, raging cross-eyed and painless and following this there's going to be sand quadraphonic toppling there's an amazing reba there's the 35 minute roses are free a piper that's insane like it's just incredible the quality of music that was being thrown out over a seven hour all night session uh that will probably never be topped in uh in in fish's history and that's okay that's fine like I said, I was not at Cyprus. I was at a party in New Brunswick, New Jersey. That wasn't terribly exciting, but I think I had a good time. <laughs> There's probably some kind of keg of, uh, of yingling. That's what we like to drink in New Brunswick in, in 1999. So we're just going to go through quickly some um, very noteworthy versions of Cross-Eyed and Painless. To kick us off, Brian, what do we got? So you got to start with the second version ever played by Fish, uh, November 2nd, 1996, Coral Sky Amphitheater. This was the first show following Halloween 96. It's mind-altering and expansive in the way that November 96 could in ways that almost no other tour could. Uh, it's just fantastic 27-minute wild jam. Uh, fast forward. July 29th, 2003 from Burgettstown. I would argue personally that this is the best ever version of Cross-Eyed and Painless. It is so 2.0 in the best week of 2.0. And then jumping into 3.0 where there's quite a few great versions because this was a very rare song in late 1.0 and all of 2.0. You have July 31st, 2009 from Red Rocks, which is a really unique version and you haven't heard this i would encourage you to seek it out and the segue into joy is uh is really really beautiful going forward we have october 16th 2010 charleston south carolina some quality ambient jamming in a fall of 2010 
June 12, 2011 from Mayweather Post Pavilion. Stays type 1, but it's fire. Quite insane peak. And then what may be uh, easily one of my personal favorite shows of all time. August 19, 2012 uh, from Bill Graham. It has uh, some outstanding ambient jamming. Almost kind of sounds like uh, a riff on the the Grateful Dead classic, The Wheel. Mm. And this... um, this is the beginning of what I would like to think is the best third quarter of all of 3.0. I never think of Cross-Eyed. I just think of Cross-Eyed, Light, Sally, and a few things in this world make me as happy as that Cross-Eyed, Light, Sally. <laughs> uh, jumping into 2013, we've got June, or excuse me, July 10th, 2013 from Homedale. Really unique jamming, uh, rhythmic perfection from Trey, kind of similar to the February 16th, 2003, Piper from Las Vegas. Uh, October 17th, 2014, from Eugene. I would argue this is one of, if not the most underrated jam of 3.0. It kills me every single time when they change keys and they come into the still waiting. It's so haunting. It sounds like fish fall tour in the Northwest in such a unique way. I love, love, love that jam. And then, uh, uh, January 17th, 2016 from Mexico, which is a really unique version with some shipwreck quotes. Yeah, Brian's not kidding about his love for uh, 1017 24 from Eugene. One of these days, we're going to release a lot of stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor from Beyond the Pond, and <laughs> it's like six hours of it is just Brian telling me how much he loves 1017 <laughs> And then it's just us bitching about baseball. So it's those yeah. three topics that we talk about behind the scenes. Yeah, the Eugene show and baseball, basically. <laughs> anyway, we have two more on this list. Of course, July 25th, 2017 from the Garden, jam-filled night. I was there, 33 minutes, two massive peaks separated by an extended ambient jam. And then July 22nd of 2018 from the Gorge, excellent ambient jamming, one of the best sets of 2018 by far. Absolutely. Um, and so transitioning here, if you listen to our uh, Cyprus, uh, um, our Cyprus split open and melt episode, uh, episode 67, uh, we talked about December 1999, the tour leading up, as well as um, uh, the first set of December 31st, 1999. So we wanted to cover here in this episode December 30th, the night before the night. Um, Really, really fantastic show. Uh, Definitely gets overlooked because of what happened the following evening. Um, But I love this show. I think it's really good to throw in. It's kind of a mix between a really solid fish festival set and a really, really good barbecue set in the sense that there's some odd song selections. There's some standard moments and uh, I don't think they really lock in for a complete set, but I love it all as a complete package, if that makes any sense. Um, Absolutely enough. That set one, I would agree. Also, um, the stuff uh, where the Seminole Chief Jim Billy comes out is a lot of fun. Yeah, there's just, you, you can tell they're kind of realizing, you know, there's a moment in it where I think it's right around the Reba in set one of. 8203 where Trey there's like a pause after the song and Trey steps to the mic and goes 
we're, we're just trying to figure out what to play here and we're realizing like we don't have any place to go for two days and the whole audience goes crazy and you kind of hear that on like a larger scale in set one of December 30th you've got a really appropriate and fitting water in the sky and um, every time they sing filter out the Everglades and wherever you are seeing fish the entire place goes crazy uh, and then you get the first light up or leave me alone since March 1st 1989 which at the time was 1092 shows as well as the first Karina since February 18th 1989 which at the time was 1096 shows so they're having a ton of fun up on stage which is really cool to hear the second set of that show has a very gorgeous tweezer. Very, very yeah. pretty into taste. Epic, epic Harry Hood. But, I mean, the one thing we always... I keep coming back to in 1230s, absolutely uh, earth-shattering version of Mike's song. Yes. Where, if I think, if you watch this, there's a lot of footage of this show on like YouTube, right? There is, yeah, especially yeah. of the Mike song that's really, really high quality. Yeah, red lights, evil intensity. It's just you're crushed under a wall of sound. Like we talked recently on this podcast about the Tool song Parabola. There's a bit in that where it gets like the notes are so thick you can't breathe. That's mm-hmm. like as close as his fish came to helping you not breathe in this, this like Mike song. Yeah, it. Um, I feel like the only comparable jam that at least that's coming to my mind is the. Uh, MoMA dance from Brooklyn 2004 where they just get into this and and I the ghost from Dix this year was was slightly there in the sense that it's just very tribal it's haunting jamming it's very drum based and um, Trey's just like kind of strumming a chord over and over again with more right. intensity um, the ghost from go ahead no, yeah, strumming intensity and stepping on pedals like a shoegaze jam. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's just like they're building like a wall of noise. Um, the ghost from Northerly Island in 2014, uh, you know, you can you can kind of compare it to that in that sense. But, you know, this is taking the peak of, you know, Fish's playing in terms of late 90s connectivity, applying it to a festival and a show where they know the next night they're going to play all night long. <laughs> and they're here playing like a full three-set show in front of all their fans. Like, I, I I, honestly wouldn't have been surprised if they would have played a two-setter that just didn't deliver in any way. But the fact that they went for a true festival show um, is something that just should be applauded completely for this. Absolutely. On that note... Let's get back to uh, what we're originally focusing on, and we're going to play a segment of the Cross-Eyed and Painless from December 31st, 1999 from Big Cypress.
Hope that you guys enjoyed that raging version of Cross-Eyed and Painless. Uh, one of my favorite versions of the song that's ever been played. Um, so as we were planning this episode, we were thinking about the fact that this Cross-Eyed and Painless, not only is it perhaps probably the fastest version of the song that's ever been played, but it also happened at like two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's crazy. Mm. Like this wasn't, you know, this, I mean, when Fish comes out for their second sets at 10 o'clock at night and everyone's already kind of settled into the show following first set and set break, it's always wild to me when they play with a ton of intensity, you know, and how they muster that energy to think that they did it at 2 a.m. knowing that they had five more hours of music is just mind-blowing to me. So um, we were thinking about late night intensity, late night speed, kind of raucous energy. And it had us come back to two very familiar men that we absolutely love. We adore them as songwriters, as musicians. We are both constantly listening to these guys, no matter what our listening projects are, no matter what we're preparing for. And we were like, you know what? Fuck it. There's no reason why we shouldn't honor Big Cypress with Neil Young and Bob Dylan. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about them a lot, but there's a reason for that. So we're going to feature songs from Neil Young and Bob Dylan in their most raucous, intense way possible. Uh, And up first, we're going to talk here really quickly about Neil Young and the album in particular, Time Fades Away, his live record from 1973. Um, Like I said, we've covered Mr. Young on this podcast many times, and rightly so. We even covered Time Fades Away in episode 28, which was Wingsuit with RJB, the podfather. And in that context, we were discussing live albums that were somewhat controversial in the way Wingsuit was. Here, we're discussing it because of the raucous energy of the show and how that compares to the Cypress cross-side. Now, I'm guessing most of our core listeners know this record front to back. But for those who don't, um, either like this podcast, like Neil Young, like sloppy guitar solos, if you like tours filled with controversy and angry, aggressive young crowds, this album is for you. This was recorded on the tour that supported Harvest in 1973. And it was here that Neil began his dive into, or his drive, if you will, into the ditch. Uh, And you can kind of imagine this tour was similar to Dylan's 1966 tour, which featured an acoustic set, followed by an electric set, that uh, the latter of which enraged many fans. Dave, I know you are a huge fan of this album as well. What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was the tour when he debuted a whole bunch of new songs with his band at the time, which was the Stray Gators. And really, um, not many fans wanted to hear them <laughs> because the album that came out before this, Harvest, that was a huge smash. I mean, you figure if you see Neil Young after Harvest, you want to hear, you know, like Heart of Gold right. and, uh, you know, Heart of Gold, maybe Alabama, Man Needs a Maid or just uh, whatever. Maybe not a man needs a maid necessarily, but like whatever. Out on the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Out on the weekend. Right. That's what they're looking for. But this was a bunch of um, bunch of unreleased songs at the time. So there was a little uh, animosity and angst. And I think he did 62 dates in three months. Yeah. I mean, 
at this point, I'm just going to recommend, um, if you want to more interested about this tour and Neil Young in general, his, um, the Neil Young biography, Shaky, by um, the author Dream McDonald, which came out in the early 2000s, is definitely one of the more thorough, one of the more interesting takes on the, uh, like, the Time Fades Away tour. I mean, this was the tour. Neil developed the serious taste for tequila. There was some alcohol abuse, which amounted to a throat infection. Graham Nash and David Crosby were recruited for backup vocals, but they don't come off as angelic. They come off as these like ghosts on the side of the stage. It's really uh, quite creepy. And really, I mean, this album, it wasn't... Um, what this record it came out in 1973 but until 2017 i think it wasn't like available on vinyl it wasn't available on cd like it wasn't was... available on cd yeah 2017 okay. he finally right. released it and um of course not, of course it was on vinyl it was reissued but it wasn't yeah. available on cd <laughs> Well, yeah, because it's I I was I was recently home and I was looking through my dad's record collection and uh, he has this on vinyl from from the early seventies and I remember asking, oh, no about, yeah, and it's like all worn up and I was blown away by it and I don't know why it wasn't a record we listened to that much as a kid. I think it's because uh, Neil hated this record for years. Um, in nineteen eighty seven, uh, he told an interviewer that Time Fades Away was quote the worst record I ever made, but as a documentary of what was happening to me, it was a great record. I was on stage. I was playing all these songs that nobody had heard before recording them. And I didn't have the right band. It was just an uncomfortable tour. I felt like a product. And I had this band of all-star musicians that couldn't even look at each other, uh, which sounds pretty miserable, but also makes for some really great rock and roll, especially in hindsight. And what's incredibly funny is that that interview was done in 1987. So he says Time Fades Away was the worst record he ever made, when in fact Landing on Water, which came out in 1986, could very well be the worst record he's ever made. <laughs> the 80s were so, a strange time for him. The 80s were a very strange time. Um, yeah, I mean, this record, it's it's just fascinating. It... Uh, it sounds almost like a grunge record 20 years earlier. And um, I, I remember the first time I heard it, this really like re reopened a, a huge interest for me in the work of Neil Young, especially um, this kind of approach uh, from him. The, it took me away from the more acoustic side of Neil more into this kind of thrashy uh, late night raucous party of Time Fades Away, On the Beach, Tonight's the Night, even Zuma, and then fast forward into um, uh, records like uh, um, uh, records like Year of the Horse, Psychedelic Pill. I mean, I feel like there's like a there's two sides to Neil in so many ways in terms of this soft-spoken singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar and this very loud, psychedelic, um, just uh, – very, very classic, classic rock artist um, that that is expanded using the guitar in so many different ways for the entirety of his career. And this really kind of sparked that interest for me in a lot of cases. It also has one of the best album covers of all time. Yes. Just depicting this like insane, smoky 1970s era like arena. When you think of like 70s arena rock. Yeah. 
figure the cover of Time Fades Away. Cameron Crowe actually used this cover. I uh, did an homage to it in uh, Almost Famous when the lights. Oh, is that when, like when Stillwater comes out and plays Fever Down? Yeah. <laughs> he he like perfectly has the camera set up, and there's a guy giving the peace sign, and then there's a rose on stage. It's uh, it's a pretty cool moment. Wow. Um, yeah. And if you if you're kind of final note on Time Fades Away, if you are interested in um, more about this tour and hearing more of it, there was a Neil Young show released here in um, early 2019, the February 5th, 1973 show from Tuscaloosa. And that's a really, really, really great live album. It's quite good. So segueing from Neil Young to um, another uh, – Rock and roll with a gigantic, to put it simply, <laughs> uh, discography. We're going to talk about the version of A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall from um, Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review. In particular, this is the version from um, Volume 5 mm. of the of the Bootleg series, which I think was the first released evidence of uh, – of, the Rolling Thunder review. Yep. I mean, it had been endlessly bootlegged. I mean, if you wanted to find it, it was out there. This was made it relatively easy to find. And um, I'll always preface this by saying I'm always hesitant to talk Bob Dylan on the podcast because, you know, I mean, Dylan and his catalog could fill up 17 podcasts on their own. And those who like Dylan really like him. So I don't ever want to step on any toes. But I just remember being... You know, I probably went through my most hardcore Dylan phase in college, as uh, as really many do, and was always made to believe that a hard rain's gonna fall. It was, you know, like the tender, rather somber acoustic classic from the Free Will and Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. So when I finally heard the Rolling Thunder review version um, in 2002, I thought, okay, this is not that. <laughs> this is. Rockets rock and roll played a very high tempo and he's singing it in a way that's so biting. It's almost like he's making fun of the original song. I mean, maybe, maybe that was the idea, but this is the rolling thunder review is a bit of a hoot nanny. I mean, he's got like David Mansfield, legendary, uh, legendary musician playing pedal steel. He's got David Bowie's guitarist from the spiders and Mars band, Mick Ronson, Scarlett Rivera on violin, Joan Baez, T-Bone Burnett kind of almost got his start with this band. I mean, just like a lot of names that kind of reads like a who's who, like backing musicians for Rock and Roll Hall of Fame artists. And, you know, this was, I think when it first came out, a lot of people complained that, you know, this doesn't even attempt to capture like an actual set list. This isn't a full show. This is kind of like it takes from a few nights in the first leg of the tour in November of uh, of of 1975, but otherwise, I mean, it's a mind blowing rock and roll record. And this is just an incredible performance of the song. And obviously, Dylan, the studio records never tell the tale because he's changing up his songs left and right on stage. Yeah, this um, I remember when this was uh, when I first heard this was in high school, and kind of similar to you, I'd been introduced to Dylan as this folk singer songwriter and really thought of him as a product of the sixties. And, um, kind of even before I listened to his 64 to 66 Renaissance, um, I remember hearing this and it was the first time I'd learned about 
Dylan's second peak, which was in the mid seventies. And a lot of that surrounds blood on the tracks and this record. Um, yeah, it sounds like you fused 1963 Bob Dylan with 1966 with that very isolated new morning Woodstock, New York Dylan with, I don't know, some like mysterious character from his imagination um, in that it it sounds like it's, it's very Americana, um, but it's also this kind of amalgamation of the character that Dylan had been creating and crafting for the better part of 20 years. Um, so yeah, this is a wild version. This whole, this record is filled with both desire era and, um, blood on the tracks era, Dylan songs, as well as reworkings of songs from the sixties. And definitely again, this was one of those first times I learned, okay, when you hear Dylan a few years, years apart, you're hearing him completely rework songs and, you know, not two or three years later, he had, you know, uh, come out as a Christian fundamentalist said he was converted. Um, and there's a bootleg series that came out about that. Um, uh, I forget what it's called now. Um, uh, the bootleg series from, uh, that Christian fundamentalist tour, um, trouble no more. And you hear all these new and totally different Dylan songs with like this very, very tight band and anything you heard from that era that, where he was playing older songs, it's with this very tight band. It completely sounds different from Rolling Thunder. So he was constantly reworking stuff. And this just catches him at a very high career peak and a moment where um, he kind of tapped into, like I said, these these characters that were floating around his head and it just produced some very high energy music. So um, what do you think? And if you want more... They just released like a 14 disc box set. It's so good. I got it. It's so good, man. It's like show by show. And while the set lists don't vary that much, there's such, such great music on there. Um, And every single night they're bringing the same level of energy. And then there's the Martin Scorsese Netflix documentary, which was just released. Mm -hmm. I haven't watched it yet because my life with a five-year-old the four-month-old doesn't exactly lend itself to watching um, <laughs> documentaries and netflix i think it makes it like fact with fiction i think there's like some yes there's some untruths but supposedly the live footage is like good enough that you know if you want like a really good dylan movie it's supposedly a lot of fun yeah i think um there've been some people who wrote, wrote about it. Jesse Jarno wrote, wrote a really great um, essay on it yes. that it's a really good Dylan movie while being a really bad Dylan documentary, I think is how he phrased. It. I could be slightly off in terms of that, but the, the point being that um, it, it feels like something out of the mystique of Bob Dylan rather than a, like no, no direction home from uh, 2005 that Scorsese directed uh, is a very clear, proper documentary about dylan this is a little bit more in the kind of atmospheric uh, experimental type of uh, approach but with rolling thunder review he kind of took on the role of a roving gypsy in a sense so it kind of it kind of makes sense that a documentary would mix the facts the the fact with the fiction absolutely so in any event let us listen to now um a hard rain's gonna fall from um Volume 5 of the Bootleg Series, The Rolling Thunder Review. 
as well as let's listen to Time Fades Away from Neil Young's Time Fades Away. Yeah, both of them. Do it.
right, guys. So from two of our favorite classic rock icons, singer-songwriters who just paved the way for so many to come, we're going to jump into new album recommendations here because we can talk fish, we can talk about some of our favorite artists, but we always have to be trying to go beyond the pond. And that is one of the greatest spirits of this segment. So in this segment, I'm going to talk about the uh, singer-songwriter goes by the name Sandy Alex G and his newest record House of Sugar. So this is the follow-up record for Alex Gianascoli uh, to the heavily praised Rocket from 2017, which was a record I personally did not care for. This one, House of Sugar, is indie pop experimentation brilliance. Uh, So Alex G is a Philadelphia-based musician and songwriter who crafts organic and anti-form indie pop songs that really sound unlike any other music I'm currently hearing. The closest comparison I can make to this album is Panda Bear's Person Pitch from 2007. It sounds like bedroom indie pop mixed with layers and layers of samples, and everything just Always feels like it can fall apart completely here, but somehow stays together in this very loose and uh, loose way. Um, imagery is flooded in and out of each song. Some of the imagery is opaque without form. Uh, other images are specific ideas that you latch onto. It's equally confounding and frustrating in a strangely welcome way. Uh, Alex uh, Alex G has been working with Jacob Portrait to mix his records since 2015, and this continues his successes of seamlessly blending noise and acoustic strumming in a way that equally sounds homemade while also benefiting from the nuanced perfection of a professional studio. Um, you know, in that note, it's it's it never sounds overly produced. It sounds like it was made kind of happenstance in the moment. But there is a clear cohesion here that, you know, it's, it, you, it's clear you need someone who really knows what they're doing from a mixing standpoint. Uh, the peak of the record for me is the song Gretel, which might by, might be a top five song of the year. Uh, side note to all this, uh, this last week has been really insane for me personally. Uh, unfortunately, lost two people close to me, one of which was very unexpected. And I've seen uh, from a professional standpoint, there's a lot of transition going on uh, professionally where I work and it's been very emotional and uh, you know, it makes you feel somewhat insecure and off balance. Um, But on Monday of this week, as we're recording, one of my really great friends passed me this song, told me I should listen to this record to which I said, "Ah, I didn't really like rocket. He said, you have to listen to this song. Just listen to the song. Do me that favor. I listened to it and it just made me instantly happy. It reminded me that there's always like brightness and goodness uh, amidst this like insanity and sadness of the world at times. And I dove into the record and I've just been absolutely loving it. So um, while I'm currently in the mix of compiling my top 200 albums of the decade, and I'm really focused on just going back through some of my favorite songs and excuse me, favorite albums of the decade, it was a really welcome surprise to get a record like this. Uh, that just blew me away in the moment and uh, really put me in a position to uh, revisit 2019 classic records uh, all the same. So Dave, what do you got? So for my new record I've been digging lately, it's a group called Lower Dens. The album is called The Competition. 
So Lower Dens are, uh, this is their fourth album, I believe. Baltimore-based band that are the brainchild of one Jana Hunter, who I believe is um, non-binary and or gender fluids. I will use the they or them pronoun to refer to them. And their band owes a lot to two things which I love, uh, namely 80s synth pop and post-punk, notably that of New Order. You get a lot of really melodic Peter Hook style bass lines in these songs, both of which work on the dance floor. And the album's only been out for about two weeks. I really have uh, yet to dive too deep into the lyrical content of it. It's only recently started listening to it, but Jana Hunter's voice is such that they could be singing uh, the dictionary and it would come across as equally alluring and friendly. <laughs> kind of, uh, but from what I gather, a theme of the album and a prior Lower Dens albums is to learn to function within and rebel against a capitalist society, thus uh, calling the album the competition. I think some of the songs in the album's latter half would appear to be directly addressing uh, like Hunter's difficulties in discussing their gender choices with their family. And on the standout single, Young Republicans, they portray a highly sardonic brand of wit, the lyric that born without souls or blood or skin we are young republicans <laughs> of course that uh, makes perfect sense actually um album reminds you a little bit of the destroyer album mm. dan behar mm. uh, the album kaput and it's kind of dedication to like gentle dance floor epics with more than a little reliance on uh, the early new order template and while there isn't a single song quite as awesome as on um, the song To Die in L.A. from their last album, being 2015's Escape from Evil, um, song for song, then the competition seems sonically sharper, probably the better record. But that's uh, Lower Dens are certainly a band worth getting into. I would agree completely. and I was so happy to see that you uh, had put this on the outline before the episode here. Twin Hand Movement, I remember uh, getting in 2010 and loving that record. And um, Escape from Evil in 2015 uh, was definitely there in my honorable mentions of that year. And uh, That's an awesome record. It's a really, really good record. And I have yet to hear the competition just because I've been going through the uh, aforementioned listening project that I'm currently on. But uh, I'm going to have that queued up here once I get through all, all my favorite albums of the decade. and. Um, I think Twin Hand Movement and Escape Room from Evil are definitely going to be on my list. Absolutely. Yeah, the song To Die in L.A. actually came on in a bar in Chicago when I was with my wife with um, talking with Beyond the Pond superfan Kathleen Henkel mm. and uh, her new wife, Amanda. You just got married. Congratulations, Kathleen. Uh, yes, congrats. That song came on the bar and I was like, Oh fuck yeah. Lower dance. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving into segment two here, where we were talking about the year 1999, a year that is really being celebrated uh, in its 20th anniversary. Uh, The ringer podcast network, of which we are both huge fans is doing a ton of uh, podcasts about the great movies from that year. One of the best film years, if not the best film year of the last 30 years. 
Um, the music was covered in a very big way by one of our favorite writers, thinkers, podcasters, Stephen Hyden, who covered Woodstock 99. Um, and so we wanted to cover some of our favorite records from that year. We did this in episode 67 as well on the uh, Cypress uh, Split Up and Melt. I covered Midnight Vultures from Beck. What, what did you play? Or no, sorry. I covered uh, uh, Blurs uh, 13 in that segment. What did you cover? Um, let me put you on the spot. Oh yeah, <laughs> Olivia Tremor Control. Oh Black yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. So we've got a couple more. Uh, 1999. Some of our favorite 1999 records. I'm gonna start out with Bonnie Prince Billy's "I See a Darkness" that came out in January of 1999. So this was the sixth album from Will Oldham uh, and the first under the moniker Bonnie Prince Billy. Uh, I was looking through past episodes. I'm pretty sure we've never formally featured Bonnie Prince Billy on BTP, uh, which is crazy. Uh, he's one of the most important songwriters in my life. This record, he's down the road, the brave and the bold, which was recorded with tortoise as, as well as the album beware along with a bunch of his B sides were really foundational records for me as I learned where and when, and how you could push beyond the norms of folk indie songcraft. Uh, when did Superwolf came out? Was that 2005? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, yes, that was 2005. So fucking Yeah, weird. that one's amazing. Um, this album, I See a Darkness, features the title track as well as the song A Minor Place that I've played solo for years. They mean a ton to me. Um, I've always enjoyed playing these songs. Um, it's a very solitary, reflective, honest and dark record. Um, and it really kind of set the table for where Bonnie Prince Billy was going to take his songwriting. Will Oldham that is, uh, but as, as the, um, under the, the guise of Bonnie Prince Billy, where he was going to take his songwriting for, you know, the, within the future. Um, this was of note ranked as the ninth best album of the 1990s by Pitchfork. And somehow, and I, I'm kind of shocked by this though, happy, uh, this is on a list of the 1001 albums that you must hear before you die. Um, now while this, the album ease down the road is my favorite of his, this is certainly, I would argue the highest point of the Bonnie Prince Billy project thus far, uh, since 2001, he's definitely made compelling music, but nothing is focused and essential as this record. Um, and that's kind of part of the point for him. Uh, he's a constantly evolving musician and songwriter and actor and poet and photographer. He can't really sit still both to a fault and to a benefit, um, I think we're all very lucky that we got an album like uh, I See a Darkness out of Bonnie Prince Billy. And so from this, we're going to play the song Madeline Mary, um, which I think kind of fits as well the overall raucous late night energy of uh, many of our selections here. So this is Bonnie Prince Billy, Madeline Mary off of 1999's I See a Darkness. Oh, 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 
Okay, Brian. I know uh, I love Barney Prince Billy. Also has some of the best contributions to um, big national curated uh, album of Grateful Dead covers that came out Day of the Dead a few years ago. That uh, we spoke yes, about. Yes, yes. He does what Birdsong and Ruben and Charisse on that. Yeah, Ruben and Charisse is really, really fitting for him. But uh, yeah, Birdsong is great. So the album I'm going to talk about from 1999 is a band called Shaq. Not like Shaquille O'Neal, but Shaq is in like a rundown structure. The album is called HMS Fable. The song I'm going to play is called Natalie's Party. So like Brian was kind of mentioning, now that it's 1999, you see a lot of blogs doing like big 20th anniversary retrospective stories on certain albums and People had all these lyrics about the millennium and what's 2000 going to bring. And HMS Fable is uh, not one of these albums. (laughs) So about 20 years ago, well, 99, there was a magazine called CMJ Monthly, which stood for College Music Journal Monthly. And this kind of featured all the hip indie bands that kids are listening to in those days. A lot of record stores gave it out for free. And it always came with a free mix CD which kind of showcased the bands within the magazine. And that's how I learned about Shaq. Um, A CD from CMJ contained the first song off this album, the very British-sounding anthem, Natalie's Party. I loved it. I needed to hear the rest. I think I found the album about a week later in the used bin um, at my local UCD store as a promo copy. Someone had it, felt like selling it there. I'm not entirely sure. It was only $8. So Shaq actually sprang up from the ashes of uh, the somewhat precious 1980s Britpop band, The Pale Fountains, and was led by the Head Brothers, Michael, a.k.a. Mick Head, and John Head. I think that the debut Shaq album actually came out uh, in 1987. And the second album, which is called The Water Pistol, was recorded in 1991, and as legend would have it, the studio that it was recorded in burned down like a few days before it was going to be released. And the only remaining tape was in the possession of the producer, who I think left in a rental car. This is a true story. It was uh, located and released in 1995. By this time, Mick Head was in the throes of uh, some heroin addiction, unfortunately. So HMS Fable didn't come out until 1999. And I'm calling it a brilliant lost Britpop album because it's very well written. It's very lush. And really, I don't hear anybody talking about this album or this band anymore. And I mean, it's still, you can stream it on Spotify. I don't know where you would actually find this record, but it's uh, it's certainly out there, out there in the ether. And they kind of remind me a little bit of uh, the Australian pop rock band Crowded House, obviously British, where I think Crowded House are Kiwis. And several of these songs uh, obliquely address McHead's heroin addiction, but most of them are uh, happen to be love songs. And I think one of their the biggest artists that owe a debt to is uh, is Love's the band Love, uh, the frontman Arthur Lee. 
I think they may have even served as the backing band for Arthur Lee in the early 90s. And I think if you have a Jones for uh, the more like, I guess, like pretty strange of late 90s Britpop, say like Travis, uh, say early Coldplay, Bell and Sebastian, or a cast, then you really should really have to get yourself some HMS Fable. Like I said, it's streaming. I think there's been two Shaq albums that haven't been released since, but I don't think that the band is currently uh, a functioning entity. I think, according to old Wikipedia, I think they played a show last in 2010 for like a charity event, but I don't know um, if they exist now. But yeah, this album is very well worth listening to. So let's listen to Natalie's Party off of uh, the Shaq album, HMS Fable. Look at all the villages in town And all the farmers hanging round We're going up to everyone we meet Shooting off the maps around the street And look at all the locals getting down Cause it's not too easy Thank you for hanging with us here in episode 77, where we chronicled Cross-Eyed and Painless from December 31st, 1999 in Big Cypress. Amazing jam led us to thinking about late night debauchery, raucous music, as well as the year 1999. And in so... We featured in segment one, Late Night Intensity and Speed, Neil Young's Time Fades Away, Off of Time Fades Away, as well as Bob Dylan's A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall off of the Rolling Thunder Review. And segment two, where we discussed 1999, we played Bonnie Prince Billy's Madeline Mary off of I See a Darkness, as well as Natalie's Party off of Shaq's HMS Fable. As a reminder, you can always find us on social media, on Twitter, at underscore beyond the pond, one word, Simplecast page, uh, beyondthepond.simplecast.fm, and of course, we have the Spotify Beyond the Pond podcast song master playlist, which is incredibly unwieldy at this point, to the extent that songs are available on Spotify that we mentioned in the episode, we will put them there. There's now well over 450 songs in that uh, in that list. Of 
Of course, we'd always encourage you to go out and buy vinyl records, go see the bands, buy some merchandise, because, you know, Spotify is good for sampling, but if you like something enough, there are better ways to get the bands paid. Also, you can find us and all the other fantastic podcasts with the Osiris Podcast family, which we are proud to be a part, on OsirisPod.com. And leave us an iTunes review. We always read them, we get a kick out of them, and it helps increase our visibility in Apple land. Absolutely. And we are right now on a pretty big kick here in Beyond the Pond. This is our fifth of five episodes coming out here in September 2019. Uh, just as a quick recap, we threw out an episode on the um uh, on dicks, especially on the ghost from dicks, as well as um, an episode on the Vancouver Tweezer, two episodes on 2015 2016 music, as well as here this the uh, uh, cross on painless from Big Cypress. We have some pretty awesome records here coming out, or excuse me, we have some pretty awesome episodes that are coming up here in the fall, some great interviews. We're going to be counting down our top albums of the 2010s. Jumping into our last Cypress Jam of the year, covering some of Fish's Fall Tour, as well as going through our top albums of 2019 and our holiday special, our annual holiday special now, which is always a fun uh, mold wine tinged version <laughs> uh, uh, episode. Um, so, yeah, good stuff. Uh, some two week gaps, some less than two week gaps, but. Uh, we appreciate you all for listening here and um, for giving us as much love as you have in 2019. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, hanging with this episode at this point. This was a fun episode to record. Brian, think you had a good time? I think I had a good time. I had a good time. Enjoyed it. So, come back. I think around two weeks. We will most certainly be back. We will hold hands. We will say kumbaya. We will fight fish myopia. And we will go beyond the pond.
Osiris.